You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I pray those words every Sunday morning at Bogart Christian Church, and I think I have a basic idea of what I mean when I do. But that sense of solid knowledge conceals philosophical and theological disputes, not only about what the verb to forgive and the noun forgiveness mean, but also how those realities relate to violence, reconciliation, narrative, memory, and all sorts of other complex matters. In his recent book, Forgiveness, an Alternative Account, Matthew Ichihashi Potts proposes that to ask God to forgive us as we forgive is a matter of analogy more than it is of identity, and the temporality and the finitude of human existence stand crucially important to our understanding and our practicing forgiveness. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome the, the Dr. Reverend Potts to the show. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Nathan. I'm glad to be here. I want to start out with some tensions in translation that uh, really inform this book. When the verb to forgive and the noun forgiveness, which I mentioned in the opening, appear in English Bibles, the Greek language metaphors, and there's more than one, that they carry yeah. into modern English come from images of economic payment and of metaphors involving geographic distance. So how does your theology navigate these metaphors differently from the theologies that you critique in this volume? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think that, um, so there are a couple of things that was that were at stake for me in thinking about this. First of all, I'm not a New Testament scholar. I mean, when I was in seminary, I took some Greek, and so I, I have just enough Greek to be dangerous, right? <laughs> but, but not to be learned. Um, the, the word that is most often used in the Greek New Testament, at least when Jesus is speaking about forgiveness, which is translated into forgiveness or into a concept like forgiveness is um, aphemi, right? Uh, and and that that literally etymologically that means to like to 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 set at a distance, right? To set at a distance. Functionally, it was used economically, right? It was used as as the idea of paying a debt, um, and so and so it was used a lot of the way that we use the English word remit or remission you can remit a debt and in my tradition the anglican and episcopal tradition in our older liturgy we actually don't pray for the forgiveness of sins we pray for the remission of sins right and so that's actually probably the most accurate english translation we have although it's not one that we use and functionally i think in kind of christian life we tend to think more about forgiveness than remission as a as a concept but that really got me thinking about things right because i i wanted to think about like how do we how does our language structure the the way that we kind of frame what sin is or what our responses to sin might be? And if you think about sin as distance versus sin as debt, how you kind of re- respond to the truth of the reality of sin maybe is a different thing. Like if it's not distance, but debt, or if distance is what's at stake and it's not debt, then things get more complicated. The other thing that was important for me with respect to translation was just how the English verb forgive it comes out of the Germanic tradition, but it's closely related to the to the Latinate, you know, pardon, which also means forgiven. Both both derive from a base root of gift, don or forgive, like forgive, right? And and so I was thinking about like so this in English, and it's both Roman and and German inheritance. There is this idea of giftedness or economy that's operating underneath it. And so, because I'm not an, uh, uh, a philologist and I'm not a New Testament scholar, my my goal with with uncovering these etymologies and these translation problems is not necessarily to try to get at the root of what 
it originally, you know, with a capital O means, but to try to think what resources do we have from the complexity of these histories, from the inadequacy of language to speak to the truth of God's love for us? Like what resources do we have to try to, to develop a theology of forgiveness that that's meaningful and useful, um, but also true to what we think the gospel witness is. And, and so that's, that's kind of why and how I lean into the, into the, into the kind of variety of translation around forgiveness. That's good. I, whenever an author or a preacher says that uh, what the Greek originally means, uh, I always check to make sure I still have my wallet. So that's, that's right. Uh, <laughs> that's right. I, because uh, this is the other thing. There's, there's, this, there's this thinker who shows up in my book a little bit named David Constant who does this survey of, of the words, the Greek words for forgiveness in classical Greek literature and in the New Testament and kind of comes to this conclusion that the English, the contemporary English usage does not accord with the ancient Greek one but doesn't allow for the possibility that the New Testament writers may have been trying to stretch a definition, may have been trying to take the language they had in Greek and, and introduce new meanings or, or excavate old meanings or reach back to their own tradition and pull out things from, from the Hebrew or the Aramaic that the Greek doesn't quite capture. And, and right. And so like, as you say, like I, I'm worried about seeing people saying the original meaning is this, what I'm interested in as a theologian, a constructive theologian is, okay, what can we do now that we know how complex this language is? Yeah, I, I made the mistake a few weeks ago of uh, telling that to my preacher at Bogart Christian Church, and now every time he mentions a Greek word in a sermon, he looks over my way and he says, are we still all right? And I'm like, oh, I, right. I, I never That's should right. have opened my mouth. Now he's going to be nervous. I, <laughs> well, Matt, I, I spend more time teaching Athenian and Roman and English tragedies than I do yeah. teaching novels. So okay. your chapter on revenge was interesting territory for me. Talk to okay. our readers about ideologies of revenge and the possibilities that emerge when we refuse to take revenge as a natural thing, independent of cultural contingencies. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the, the question of what natural is, is really complicated. Right. And I'm, I worry about the question of like, what's natural. Cause usually the question of what's natural is just us trying to assign what's normative or what, ought, what we think ought to be normative. I think, you know, one of the people I lean into in this book, a little bit is the 18th century Christian preacher Joseph Butler, also an early modern moral philosopher. And Butler Butler writes a lot and preaches these very famous sermons on Christian morality and has a couple of sermons on forgiveness, um, where the main topic is forgiveness. But actually, his actual like he spends about half of his time in those sermons talking about resentment and talking about like anger and resentment and how like it's normal. He says he says. I think he says natural. He says it's natural to feel anger. Right, and in right. fact, it's necessary to feel anger because anger lets us know when we have been harmed. And it's important for moral reasons to know that we've been harmed or to know that the woes we love have been harmed. Right. And so what he's worried about is us kind of um, moralizing the emotional response of anger. And I think that I think that like the language of revenge is tricky because because revenge can connote a number of things. It can mean the feelings that that arise, I mean, it can connote the feelings that arise in you, feelings of vengeance, which some of the Butler would say, like, those are maybe natural feelings. Like, it might be not unexpected that when someone harms you, that you feel a urge inside you to harm them in response, right? The question is not, does the feeling arise? Or the question ought not to be, is it normal or natural to have that feeling arise? The question is, like, what do we do with that? Now, revenge often refers to the acting out in violence or the acting out of a spirit of vengeance so the the right. revenge is an I action mean. yeah yeah revenge <laughs> is an action depends upon the impulse or the or the feeling 
in the book, I actually want to focus more on this idea of retaliation, right? Retaliation as like as like a response to a prior harm, which is which is moderated in some way, which is which is calibrated in some way, right? Because revenge is, I think the the I think the implication with revenge is that because it's inspired by this emotional response, it is less controlled or deliberate or or calibrated. Whereas retaliation, by its etymology, it comes from the law of like for like, the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It means your response should be proportional to the harm, and therefore you don't just you aren't just governed by what you feel you're governed by some other kind of rule. Now, Butler makes a big deal about this because he tries to figure out, okay, how do we decide what is sufficient response to an injury? How do we decide when he's like, it's okay to feel angry. What you ought not to do is abuse your anger. But then he tries to ask the questions like, how do we know when we've gone too far? How do we know when our retaliation is no longer proportional and has become vengeful in a way that exceeds the the, the rational limits of of one's anger. I, I'm asking a deep, I, like, I think I'm asking a different question than, than Butler. I think I disagree with where Butler ends up in some of his conclusions, because I want to ask the, the, what I see is like a kind of Sermon on the Mount question about what does Jesus mean when Jesus says the law of like for like, the lex talionis has not been overturned, but fulfilled in his teaching to love your enemy and to turn the other cheek. How is that, how is that teaching preserving what is at stake in the lex talionis rather than undoing it? Very good. Very good. And it's interesting. I, and once you narrated that, that made some sense, I, I guess, because I spend so much time teaching Shakespearean revenge tragedies. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. me, it's not revenge until somebody gets stabbed. So I, uh, right. you know, right. uh, the, the idea that you could have <laughs> right. a purely emotional revenge is something like saying, you know, you can praise silently. I'm like, okay. I mean, if, if you're trying yeah. to be cute and poetic, maybe, but I mean, uh, does someone get stabbed soon? Yeah. But you know, that's, <laughs> I, I guess that's, yeah, that's where right. my mind goes. <laughs> it, what's really interesting too, is that like, as you, as you know, from the book, like Hannah Arendt, who's a philosopher I, I talk about and W.H. Auden, who's a poet I admire, they had like this argument and correspondence about whether or not forgiveness can be represented on stage. Cause, cause he says like forgiveness is an interior experience. It's not something you can show and act dramatically. Um, but I think the connection between what we feel on the inside and what we do on the outside is is interesting for Christian ethics. Christian ethics is is trying to figure out where it should land on that scale and trying to figure out how many of our like which of our feelings ought to be policed and which of our actions ought to be policed. And I have my own idea of like like where it should fall on that. Sure, sure. And you know, one of the places you go with this conversation is to Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, which is another book that I teach with some frequency. Yeah. And in that book, he links forgiveness to those cities and those empires that have become so powerful that the yeah. paltry violence of one person can't do any real harm. So there's really yeah. nothing to forgive. So uh, right. what I found interesting about your book is that you marshal some thinkers to counter this notion of invincibility as the root of forgiveness. So talk a little bit about that, that 20th century alternative to Nietzsche's version. Yeah. So Hannah Arendt, who I just mentioned, is one of the folks who's, who's doing this, right? What Hannah Arendt sees as, as operating in the Western philosophical tradition is sort of a, um, a, uh, a an idealization of, of a particular kind of freedom. And you, we might turn to, like someone I turn to in my teaching, I teach, you know, I teach in seminary, and, and a person I turn to a lot when thinking about freedom is, is Karl Barth. Uh, the evangelical uh, and Calvinist reform theologian who spoke about the difference between freedom from and freedom for, right? Freedom from is kind of a libertarian freedom where like, oh, I don't tread upon me. I, I don't impinge upon me. I am most free when I am not obligated to others. 
Freedom for implies that when I am most myself, I can be for others the way God created me to be for others, right? And there may be encumbrances upon me that keep me from, I mean, Bart would say sin is one of the primary ways in which we are fettered and kept from being who we were truly created to be, which is for others, right? Um, so one of the things that, that Arendt notices, I don't think Arendt was reading Bart, but one of the things that Arendt notices is Arendt says, like, throughout the Western tradition, there has this been this idea of freedom, of the sovereign one who is who who cannot be harmed by others who cannot be impacted by others and that sense of like freedom from others freedom as, as a kind of sovereignty that is the most stable and safe way that the western subject according to Arendt, has found itself to be and she traces this all the way back to plato like this is the original kind of platonic mistake she says right like this idea of oneness as the most stable and best form of being is a kind of oneness which is unimpinged or unimpacted by otherness and she's like that's just not how humans are right like we actually are in the world and impacted by others and if you try to imagine a nietzschean's kind of solitary freedom where the only form of forgiveness that exists is the one where you cannot harm me and therefore i'm indifferent to what you've done to me and so i don't even need to forgive you because you are so insignificant to me that it doesn't matter. She's saying like, that's just, that's that's a continuation of this idol and this myth that Western philosophy has has depended upon for too long. What she wants to say is like, no, we are, we're, we are creatures that are in relation to other creatures. And that when we make promises, like we cannot always keep them and we do not always know the outcomes of our actions. And what we are free to do is not to be, to be like unaffected by others. What we're free to do is begin again. If something goes wrong, then our freedom is, is not that we have not been affected or cannot affect others. Our freedom is that we can recognize that we have been in the wrong and start again. And that, she says, is the really miraculous freedom that the human has as an actor in the world, that we can we can start again when things are going wrong. We can begin again when things are going wrong. And really interestingly, like she wasn't a, a particularly religious person and certainly not a Christian, but she turns to Jesus in this chapter of the human condition and says like Jesus is sort of the she calls him the savant of forgiveness, the person who realized that that this capacity for humans to begin again was as miraculous as anything else he did, <laughs> right? And that and that and that when she and she in her kind of you know very spare scriptural reading, she says like when she gives the disciples power to 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 perform healings, it's commensurate in terms of its miraculousness with their power to offer forgiveness, because what the human can do is begin again in a way that. That others can't and she so she says that's what freedom is it's not being unencumbered or unimpacted by others because that's just what it means to be human you're 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 impacted by others it means be, being able to to begin again and that really does become the alternative to the to a nietzschean kind of a, the kind of totalitarianism that a certain kind of nietzschean philosophy inclines too easily towards i think right right and I'm going to take a little bit of sidetrack here because one of sure. the examples of that influence of other people that really resonated with me uh, was your story about uh, Derrida's sorrow when he discovers the National Socialist sympathies of Paul yeah. Demon, And yeah. he realizes that he can't simply renounce him and he can't simply dismiss him, but there's something more complex going on when he mourns. And, and, and I recognize this dynamic myself because in my own theological education, the books of John Howard Yoder and people yeah. who studied with Yoder influenced yeah. my own Bible reading and my own theology years before I came to know of his sexually yeah. abusing his graduate students. And what I find is when I try to name Yoder's crimes, I do so in the vocabulary of John Howard Yoder. And yeah. so, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's dizzyingly complex and terribly frustrating, but I should ask you a question about your book. When you write about forgiveness <laughs> as risking a life of conditioned freedom, 
how does that unfold unfold in these contexts where as a thinker you've been influenced by someone who has committed crimes yeah well that's a good question i mean i you know i i went to notre dame for college when john howard yoder was teaching there and i was i was in rotc um and i remember one of the first meetings we had was john john howard yoder came to the assembled rotc students and talked about um talked about jesus and 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 uh the and I, I looking i didn't know who john howard yoder was at the time looking back on it i I really had to commend the military leaders at the Rossi unit who invited invited Yoda to come. Yeah, speak I, to I, all I, us I, I, will, I, I, I believe you, but I don't want yeah. to believe you when you say that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But I, I also remember him just, you know, he wasn't like, he wasn't, he wasn't, um, I mean, I think that his theological, if I remember his theological message was probably above the heads of most of the midshipmen and cadets who are in that room. Um, but I also remember that he was not—he was not apologizing or soft peddling any of his teaching, and he—he he was really kind of challenging in what he spoke about. And I, like you, later I was um, um, saddened and and um, and uh, I mean angry to hear the, the news of like how he had treated many of his graduate students. So what do you do when your teachers are sinners? <laughs> I think, um, or when the only language you have to 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 try to diagnose these problems is is language you've inherited i mean you know i don't know if i have a good question answer that question i think i mean part of what i see going on with that's actually kind of comforting by the way yeah (laughs) i mean since you just wrote a book about forgiveness that's kind of you know yeah i mean i think it's related to that i mean uh, you know the one of the things i think is going on underneath that it's 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 about paul the man and they were and derrida and the man were close we're friends in a way with the example i'm about to give doesn't um doesn't match but but all these folks are are inheritors of heidegger all these folks are deeply deeply inherited to heidegger and i think there's a and and i think there's a deeper kind of sense of like what do we do that this person who became completely like entangled with the nazi party and the nazi party and, and national socialism's um the national socialist movement in germany what do you do with the fact that his ideas ground so much of what we're thinking and what we're doing and i think arendt was doing that i mean arendt was heidegger's lover and arendt was jewish and and she was trying to mix i think she was trying to figure out heidegger was also part of this nietzschean legacy she was trying to figure out what am i supposed to do when i feel like so much of what he said is important to how i how i think but also he was so deeply wrong <laughs> right and i think derrida is in a different way with demand because i think derrida was also wrestling with the idea of like had demand moved on like what does it mean that he never apologized like there was there were never admitted that this happened like it's clear that heidegger didn't move on and didn't apologize and so that put thinkers like levinas and others in his wake in a particular position with respect to him and forgiveness with with the man when the stuff emerged after his death and people didn't really know and and you know it it just became more complicated i i think so i don't have an answer to your question other than to just add a bunch of more facts and complications to it i think one thing i would say and and i and i do engage this a lot in the in the in the second chapter of the book i think or i try to is a, a robust theology of forgiveness i think has to also kind of accompany a robust theology of repentance or trust in God's forgiveness of us, right? Like this idea, you you open the thing, open the, the podcast speaking about how I, I want to root everything in human finitude. And part of what I think about with finitude is not just ontological, it's also moral. 
that humans are don't have a capacity to be, to be good in any on our own, right? We don't have a capacity to be pure. All we can do is do our best and then trust in God's forgiveness of us to to kind of to 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 pull us along and to and to and to redeem us. And that also means that the language that we have, the the systems of thought that we have, the tradition that we have. I mean, I think about this as a as a Christian, which coming out of a Christian tradition, which I love and I'm a part of, but I also know has to was deeply influenced, which deeply influenced all the anti-Semitism that, that that we're talking about. Like I was like, I have to own that stuff, and but owning it means trusting that God can forgive us of that, and it means that like using the tools I have doesn't mean I think those tools are pure or that those tools redeem me. It means acknowledging that they're flawed, and and um and broken in their own ways, but trusting that God, trusting that God can forgive even the flawed, broken attempts that we have to try to try to be good in the world, which are doomed to fail. Right. Right. That, right. That's, that's and and I realize as you're right? narrating yeah. that, that even my question uses the Heidegger, the Heideggerian notion of temporality, even as I frame yeah. the question. So I, <laughs> yeah. it's a, well, once again, deep, deeper into the, deeper into the mess, yeah. deeper into the mess. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Matt, I, I've, give, I've not given you much occasion to talk about the four modern novels that spur the book's yeah. conversation. So let me stop here and ask, how do these conversations we've been having about memory and retaliation play out yeah. in Ishiguro's novel, The Buried Giant? Sure. So The Buried Giant, for those listeners of yours who haven't read it, The Buried Giant is a really beautiful novel. It's it's kind of like an Arthurian fantasy novel. It's a it's a it's an experimental thing for Ishiguro, who doesn't usually write uh, Arthurian fantasy, um, but in interviews, he said the reason he did this is because he wanted to he wanted to imagine a situation that took place in a locale or in a time and setting of extreme conflict and violence, but not one that would be um, that would be kind of personally relevant to most modern readers, right? So if he said it in in 1980s Northern Ireland or in contemporary um, uh, Israel and Palestine, right, like it would immediately stir up a kind of a kind of emotional response, an understandable emotional response that he felt he couldn't really dig into the questions of memory that Anglo-Saxon Britain allows him, right? And so what he sees right. is sort o- of like only the, medievalists the, like me care about Normans and Saxons. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so he he sets it in that time and tries to think about, you know, what was probably certainly an incredibly violent um uh conquest of 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 uh, of the you know the 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 British people by by the Germanic peoples, um, and and what he does is he he uses some magic and some magical things to to imagine that peace has been preserved in this place by forgetting that Merlin and and Arthur they they cast a fog of forgetting over the whole land, and because no one can remember how they've been harmed, no one their anger isn't realized. They're, I mean, everyone seems kind of testy all the time right in the book but no one's like fully angry because they know what they're angry about and therefore peace is kept and so the the novel like progresses with this thought experiment really which is like is a is a a peace which feels so uncomfortable and cannot remember a better alternative to full memory and the dangers and violence that full memory might might introduce and then the novel is kind of explores that but it also, as a lot of novels do, like it, it doesn't explore that just in the social level. It refracts that particular question to through two of the main characters who are a married couple. There's been some offense in their past, which they cannot remember. And so they have this tentative piece between them, even though they have this kind of memory of a memory of hurt. And but they don't where know where it comes from. And so like 
as I said, the social is refracted to the personal and vice versa in a novel in a way that makes an exploration of memory and of retaliation. For me, anyway, just it was it was just kind of fun. I mean, a lot of the reason you asked me about these four novels, a lot of the reason I I chose these novels was was because I like them. Right? I was thinking I was thinking if I'm going to write a book about forgiveness, and I wanted to write a book about forgiveness, I also wanted to write about things which I enjoyed. I would enjoy spending a few years reading and rereading and writing about. And so I just think it's kind of a beautiful novel. And so it's, that's one of the reasons I chose it. Very good. And listeners, when you go out and get this book and you will go out and get this book, uh, <laughs> the examinations of the novels really are where the best material is at. Uh, in an hour, we can't do the, uh, the literary yeah. criticism and the theology. So we're doing the theology <laughs> during the hour. That's my yeah. choice, not Matt's. Blame me, listeners. <laughs> but I want to pivot to another of your novels, and it's probably one that sure. more of our listeners have, have read. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of the European, you know, tradition of, of theologies of forgiveness involve penance. Uh, yep. You know, the, the confessional traditions are full of it. But your discussion of uh, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead um, they call penance into question and you aspire instead to accountability. So what are some of the more important differences between penance on one hand and accountability on the other? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, it's a novel I really love too. I read it for the first time when I was in seminary and um, it's been really important to me for a lot of reasons, but my reading of it has changed over time. And in particular, my reading of of the, the main character, John Ames, has changed over time. I'd love him no less than I did the first time I read it, right? But I think about his actions differently than I did before. Um, and, it, and the novels become more beautifully as I've come to reconsider what I think are both his grace, like his gifts and also his failures in the in the in the novel. So so penance and accountability. I, I think that I think that one of the things that that I think about with penance is that. I worry about the idea of forgiveness as a simple exchange, especially if we're thinking about forgiveness as, as a way of undoing what has been done in the past, because so many wrongs that are done to us are things that can't be undone. And the penance, if it's thought of as compensatory, is always going to fail because, you know, if you kill my brother, you can't, there's no penance you can do, which is going to bring my brother back. So the a compensatory or purely economic frame is not going to be satisfactory if penance is what counts, right? At least on my reading. So I, I worry about penance in that simple sense. Um, but I think one of the folks I look at in, in thinking about penance is Michel Foucault, who has this, he has this reading of penance and, and he also looks at this economic metaphor of penance and what he sees in the reading of Tertullian, the ancient Christian theologian, he says what's actually at stake in, in, in penance. He thinks about penance as a, as a payment, as a currency, right? But he says, what's important about it is not that it exactly compensates. What's important about it is that it proves your remorse valid, right? It's kind of like the same way you can, whether a coin is, is good currency or forged, right? Like you need to tell if, he's like, if, if a person needs to show remorse, how do you show remorse? Like we don't know what's going on inside a person's interiority. All they can do to communicate their remorse to us is external. It's all external acts. I mean, this goes back to your Shakespeare question, right? Like how do you, how do you represent outwardly what's going on inwardly? And what he says is the Christian tradition develops this practice of a person who's truly penitent would be willing to truly suffer in order to prove their penance, their penitence. And so penance becomes this form of suffering that penance doesn't take on, the actual purpose of which is proof. It's trying to prove that you are, prove that you are truly penitent. And your true penitence is the thing that 
develops in this economy of exchange. Now, now does, I mean, I does think that examination yeah. predate Nietzsche or does it inherit Nietzsche? Because, I mean, it sounds like a, a yeah, sort of photo negative of, of, of ge yeah. genealogy of morals. Yeah, it's inheriting Nietzsche. It's okay, for sure okay, inheriting Nietzsche. Yeah, He's yeah, just doing this kind okay. of close reading of Tertullian to do it. Okay, well, well Nietzsche also on. uses Tertullian, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, does he really? I don't remember. Oh, that. in Genealogy of Morals, yeah. I mean, he he quotes the uh, horrifying That's... passage about, you know, the the redeemed, you know, enjoying the torments of the damned, and oh, that right, being yeah. one of the bonus features of heaven. You know, that, that oh, patch of Tertullian that. that we all try to hide on the back shelf. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Um. Well, I, and what I think what what Foucault does is he takes it into like Cassian and then the development of like forms of confession in the Middle Ages, where where like if, in the confessional where a priest sits with the with the penitent and in order for the sin to be absolved you have to put it into words you have to put it into a language that is that is legible to the person to the confessor right and so the confessor decides what is a sin and what isn't all this very Foucaultian stuff right. So anyway, I, I think that's all interesting and complicated. I want to move to the language of accountability because um, because for a couple of reasons. It's because I mean it's another one of these language things. It's it's a little bit because of a pun I like on the on the word accountability, right? <laughs> like an account can refer to like a ledger book, the kind of balance keeping, the economic metaphor that that governs even what Nietzsche and, and Foucault are talking about, and which I think tends to govern the way we think about addressing sin in the Christian tradition, at least in a lot of the ways we do it. But an account also can be just like a story, a narrative, right? Right. The gospel and, and as you said, that's right. And mm -hmm. as you said in the beginning, like I'm interested in how narrative works and how narrative functions and how we can think about who we are and how we are as constituted by the stories we can tell to and about each other. And how, and particularly with the with respect to Gilead, like there's a certain part of our story that we cannot narrate ourselves. I mean, the analogy would be like, you know, you can't see your own face. Someone has to tell you what you look like unless you have a mirror, right? And and some of the people I, I lean upon, they say like, you know, we can't narrate our own births because we don't remember them. And we can't narrate our own deaths because we're not around to narrate them anymore. There are parts of ourselves which we need others to tell us who we are, right? And that kind of accountability, when we come into relationship with others, acknowledging the limits of our own vision, and invite others to contribute to our vision of ourselves, that becomes something more like accountability because then my account becomes fleshed out. And I, that's what I see happening with John Ames, which is as he tells his story, which begins as a story of his life to his son, as he's forced to tell it and to listen to other people, especially his namesake, Jack Bowden, tell him who he has been and what his ministry has meant. He is able to see by the end of the book, some failures that he hadn't recognized other way before and he's also able to repent for those failures and also to to hope for the redemption of those failures in a really earnest and, and endearing and admirable way, I think, by the end of the book. So as I said, he doesn't become any less lovable or any less admirable as a character. On the contrary, I, I find him more admirable because through this process, he's able to see himself more clearly. By listening to others, he's able to tell his own story more clearly because it's been told to him. And then he can actually own what he's done wrong and what he's done well and and then hand the rest to God and ask God to 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 redeem the rest. Very good. One thing that I like about this book is that there are several threads that kind of run all throughout the book. It's not uh, segmented into ideas, but it's relationships between ideas that run from start to finish. And one of the threads that I really, really got me thinking, I'll put it that way, is that forgiveness ought to be a matter less of emotional change to, to go from more angry to less angry and yeah. more of a 
non-retaliation ethos. So yeah. talk to our listeners a moment about the self-righteousness that an ethics of non-violence or non-retaliation threatens to become and what alternatives you discover to that self-righteousness when you talk about the four novels and also just, you know, yeah. theological writings when it comes to yeah. non-retaliation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, this came from a couple of places. I mean, that, that early encounter I had with John Yoder actually played out later on in my life because I went into the Navy and then I left the Navy as a conscientious objector um, uh, because of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, because of my own interpretation of them and what I thought was, um, was my responsibility as a Christian and as a person who wanted to become a Christian minister. Um, but I was always very conflicted about that because my dad retired from the Navy. My brother is still in the Navy. Like I, 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 I met and served with some of the most admirable people I've ever known in the Navy. And so like, I, I always felt a sense of even the decision that I made was like this act of sort of self-righteousness against of all these other people who I respect so much and who I admire so much. And so that was always kind of like going on inside me. The other thing that happened is like, you know, this is what scholars do. Like we write stuff and then we share it with people who, who maybe agree or maybe don't agree, agree with us. And then they give us feedback. And, you know, in an early version of this, of this book, I, I spoke about nonviolence more than non-retaliation. And one of my, one of my friends and teachers said, is, is, is nonviolent protest nonviolent? Cause a lot of people who protest nonviolently have a lot of violence visited upon them. I think you might want to use reuse this language, right? There's still violence happening. It's just not initiated by the person who called themselves nonviolent, right? And that got me thinking. Um, and the other thing was like this person was just kind of less convinced by a a, a non-retaliatory framework. Yeah, can I pause for just a second? I, yeah. I don't I don't yeah. get that because if a vegetarian gets eaten by a bear, he doesn't stop being vegetarian. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true. I think what this person didn't want was to obscure the costs of a nonviolent position. Okay, that's right? fair like, enough. That's fair I, enough. Okay. I think it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like a technical, <laughs> grammatical or definitional response. It was like, let's not obscure, like, you know, the, the people who tended to engage in nonviolent protests and the fact that they, they're, the violence against them is already obscured in so many ways. Let's like, let's let's make sure we lift it up right okay that, it was makes more sense. Like, that makes sense yeah okay it was, it was more like that <laughs> i gotcha um, the other thing was that she was just she was just like less convinced of of a non-retaliatory posture in general because she just believed it right and what happened is just kind of talking to her and and working it out and thinking about both gilead and and sort of a you know the the this john's john ames the eldest and gilead is sort of like a stand-in for john brown i think in the in the novel and and um and so like figures like john brown and the sort of the the righteous his righteous commitment to ending slavery as an as a terrible violence and and engaging in violent means to do so and then that had me really thinking right because i didn't want to let go of my sermon on the mount commitment but i also was trying to think about how do we do this and the person who really helped me think through this was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a who's a been a person I'm a fan of as a as a theologian um, since since my seminary days, and the the reason is because he also you know in the cost of discipleship or in discipleship whatever title you want to use he writes very eloquently about the commitment to Christian pacifism and how we ought to be how the that how the word of God and and Jesus's teaching doesn't really have caveats or exceptions it just is the teaching right but then we also know that towards the end of his life um he participated we don't know how much he participated but we know he participated in this assassination plot of hitler i mean he got killed for um, it so he had to be he somewhat got, involved he got, 
he, yeah, he got he got killed for it. And we also know in his ethics, which did not speak directly to that participation, he spoke a lot about what it means to be responsible, what it means to be responsible in the world, right? And and where he ended up, and this is the thing that became really appealing to me and interesting to me about this account as a way for me to think about accountability was. What he would say is in a situ- I think what Bonhoeffer would say, like I said, he didn't speak about the situation explicitly in the ethics, but I think the ethics speaks to this, implies it. He, he, he would say the problem with Christian ethics is that it, like the problem with humans, that we strive for, to ground purity in ourselves or in our own thought, right? So he says, like, if, if we look at a moral situation and we say, okay, one is the right and one is the wrong, and all we have to do is choose the right and then we will be right. We will be in the right. You know, so he has this very famous line from the ethics where he says that the uh, the like Christian ethics is not ethics. There's no such thing as Christian ethics because ethics is the ethics is the game of trying to figure out how you can f- do the right thing and self ground your own righteousness. And he says Christianity rejects that entirely. What he says instead is you might have a situation where the only thing you can do is a thing that God has commanded you not to do, <laughs> right? And then the only way to act, and this is very Lutheran of him, right? Like. In that situation where the only thing you can do is a thing that God has commanded you not to do, and you also must act, unless you believe in God's forgiveness, you will not be able to act, right? Unless you believe, if, you, if you're obsessed with your own purity, your own moral purity, and when you come in a situation like this, where you hear the clear word of God that says, thou shalt not kill, or turn the other cheek, or love your enemy, and you also hear the clear word of God that, the, that these people must be protected, and you need to like try to protect the vulnerable, right? Like you have this situation where both neither option is one where you can be pure then you need to take an option which is necessary and then and then ask god for forgiveness when you do it yeah right? it's interesting. And so, our, our our other one of our other podcasts it's a conversation yeah. podcast called the christian humanist podcast our yeah. uh, sign off every episode is from uh, luther's letter to melanchthon the uh, let yeah. your sins be strong let your faith be stronger so That's the, right. this is yeah. all resonating a lot with me this is Luther with the freedom of the Christian, right? It's not because it's because we know we cannot redeem ourselves, that we we have the courage to act when we must act. But what that changes is like instead of like this is what I think where John Brown and John Ames the senior goes wrong, is when we take those actions, those necessary actions, instead of engaging them tragically as the things that we could not but do and that God has commanded against, we tend to celebrate them as righteous. Right. We say, oh, this was the right thing because look who we saved. And of course, look who we saved. It was it was necessary. But we celebrate it as righteous. And that 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 redounds to our own righteousness rather than saying, oh, the world is broken and we are broken and we couldn't do anything but this. Our response should be one of penitence, of tragic, of like a tragic character saying, like, you know, returning from the battlefield, not celebrating our victory or even those we saved, but mourning for those that we had to had to harm in pursuit of all the things that we did say. Right. Right, And that to me, that posture towards God, that kind of penitence, that's, that's the one I think something like, like, um, like Bonhoeffer invites. And I think it's also the one that I think that's what's going on with, with John Ames in the novel, the narrator, John Ames, because he says at one point in the novel, he says, I, I ended up thinking my, my dad was probably right. My dad, the pacifist, not my grandfather, the John Brown stand in. And at the end of the novel, I think he's more like, I think we're all in the wrong. And I think that we, none of us can redeem ourselves. And that is where we should have started from when thinking about any of these problems. Very good. Among the theologians you engage in this book, the one who's probably shaped my thinking the most is John Milbank. And when you present his claim that God restores the plenitude of being in forgiveness rather than undoing particular wrong acts, uh, that's basically how I read him. So, you know, I, I yeah. was, 
I was with you that far. You are more suspicious than I am uh, of Milbank. I mean, uh, I find that claim inspirational. You find it uh, a little bit suspect. You're the author here. Tell our re- tell our readers why. I mean, what I like about that claim, and maybe I was too hard on Milbank in the, in the book, but what I like about that claim is his kind of utter, uh, utter just sort of indifference to any kind of compensation, right? There is not, mm-hmm. like when he thinks about the sacrifice of Christ, when he thinks about the death of Jesus, one thing he speaks against, and I think he's right about this, is he's like, this death is not paying for, it's not undoing something that we have done. It's not, it's not like, it's not a, it's not a blood price. Right, because that would make all the kind of clumsy critiques of Christian atonement theology, like he would say that would make them all right if this were just a blood price. And he he doesn't. He's like, no, God's love was already infinite. There was already evil deprivation in being. God is replete being. So these it just needs to be filled in. And God's love is expressed in Jesus. And so that's not it's not undoing something that was done. It's just the continuation of that which was already there, which was the infinity of God's love. And so the death is not the thing that pays for it. It's just what the love, overflowing love looks like, right? And I do I do like that. And I, I so I, I appreciate that a lot um, in Milbank. I think what, what and it's, it's more of a worry in tone, I guess. And maybe this is not a fair thing to criticize a theologian for, um, which is, is that be, because, I mean, another way to put this is maybe I'm, high church Anglican though I am, I think I'm maybe more of a Protestant than, <laughs> than John Milbank, which is that I think Milbank, his ontology is one in which the repletion of being, our, our, our identities as creatures of God are, are, um, are sort of diminuations of the one being, like that, that it's kind of a platonic model, right? Which is like, yeah. God is replete being, and then we exist at, insofar as we participate in it and the and if if we participate very poorly or very little in it then we're not much and the more we participate in it the closer we are to god and the more the more um our our union with god is consummated right and 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 he criticizes the protestant tradition or the reformed tradition as sort of instead of thinking of 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 being as one in this way of thinking as god as one being which has created a separate being which is creation i i think that he's probably right in diagnosing protestant theology that way i'm not sure i'm as concerned about it as he is or i i just i'm, I'm also not sure that is I i'm also not sure that that's, that's that's the ontological model i want to assume but what does worry me is you know this thing about finitude which i which i which i get into is that it, it does worry me that that what worries me about Milbank is that how do i say this let's see one of the things i talked about early in the book who I bring to bear with Milbank is this guy named a, a French philosopher named Vladimir Jankelevich. And Jankelevich talks about love and how love loves not because the other is good or deserves it, because that would be esteem or admiration. Um, but in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it, like love exists for its own sake. You don't love someone, be, right? Like at least the way that, that we love those we love most deeply, it's just right. the mere fact of existence, right? Um, and, and, the way I think about I, I, what I worry about with Milbank is that um, is that that God's love for us is realized in the kind of overcoming of who we are as created by the love of God as finite beings, right? And so, 
So when I think about the way that God's love for us works is that, you know, this is, this is probably obvious for Christian theologians, right? But like, it's not that we are created finite beings first, and then God decides to love us. Rather, God's love itself is the thing that creates our finite being with relation to God's infinity. And so the idea of overcoming that finitude as what we are already beloved by God and kind of being brought into the totality of God so that our finitude is erased into God's infinity. I think there's something that's just kind of tonally troubling about that for me. It's like, it's, it, it reads a little bit like totalitarian, right? Like we will be fully loved when we become not ourselves anymore and are fully absorbed into God. And that's not what Milbank is saying, but I worry that the, I worry that the model that he's creating is pushing us this way. And for my own kind of tonal reasons, I want to really insist on we are loved as broken, as finite. And in, and in fact, our finitude is not the obstacle to God's love for us or, or our relation to God, but actually we exist as finite because God loved us in the first place. What that means eschatologically is a, is a complicated problem. And I think that Milbank would say to me, like you have some eschatology problems <laughs> and he might be right, but. but well, yeah. Milbank came on this show once and uh, whatever he said to you, he would talk for 27 minutes without taking a breath. So I, <laughs> Yeah, right. I'm, I'm kind of glad he's not here to talk to you. I I love his books, but man, he's he, I uh, yeah, he he wasn't much of an interview subject. But and I don't think he listens to this either. I kind of hope he doesn't okay. at this point. But okay. <laughs> listeners, you can go back and listen, and you'll hear that I'm right. Um, I'll also say, listeners, that uh, you know, as we come up on an hour we have barely scratched the surface of this very very rich book. So once again. Be sure you go out and get it. Matt, I want to turn to Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. And when you focus there on the terror that comes both with remembering trauma and the terror that comes from forgetting trauma. So talk for a moment about the reading of the novel that frames this conversation, because it's in a particular literary critical tradition. And then tell our listeners about remembering by grieving. Yeah. Thanks. That, boy, that, that kiss a lot to this novel, I, I think. So I guess, I mean, the, the easiest way into this novel, Beloved, and I'm, there's going to be some spoilers for your listeners who have not read Beloved before. Um, so uh, if you don't want to spoil first of all, if you haven't read Beloved, before you buy my book, go buy Beloved and read that book. <laughs> right? I, I imagine um, a fair number of our listeners have read Beloved. I hope so. I hope so. There, There's one dominant school of thought in interpreting Beloved, and there's one other kind of kind of minority reading of beloved which is the dominant school of reading beloved is that the the character beloved in the novel is a ghost is a ghost of the of like a a, a a ghost made flesh of a child that that the main character sefa killed when she was she had fled slavery with her children and she's about to be taken back into slavery and rather than let this child um who was a toddler at the time be brought back to slavery she murdered this child right and this child haunts and it's a magical realist novel and the child haunts the family for years until another slave from the same plantation shows up at the house um, and kind of exercises it of the poltergeist and the, the the ghost who is disembodied leaves the home and then shortly thereafter a, an embodied person shows up and people start to believe that this is the embodied form of the the child beloved and there's a literary scholar uh from georgia i think who who um who in the late 80s early 90s wrote an essay um speculating that maybe this was not a ghost maybe actually this was there's another character in the novel who's said to have a a young woman who was held captive and sexually abused and then has escaped and then no one knows what happened to her 
And this happens just before this other young woman shows up um, in Setha's house. And the scholar Elizabeth House, excuse me, Elizabeth Elizabeth House said, the scholar Elizabeth House says it's possible that this this person is not a ghost. This person is a real, a real, a real young woman who has escaped bondage once again, right? And the implications of that are really interesting because at the end of the novel, the beloved, the character is kind of exercised by the community. She's, she gets into this very destructive relationship with Setha, with Setha and others. Setha starts wasting away and the community kind of like purges beloved from, from the community um, in, in Cincinnati, um, the black community in Cincinnati where this takes place. And if she's a ghost, then that's great because we exercise the ghost in the past, right? But if if she's actually another young woman who who people could only see as a ghost of the past, rather than see her, then what they have done is they have re re like they replicated a sacrifice, like they have taken this woman, a child who was who was killed by her mother many years ago, and because that trauma was so great, when another child emerges who could they could care for they cannot but see her as the as the ghost of a past child and so try to exercise her and punish her again hurt her again and so in the chance to do something better do something to to save someone they exercise her and she disappears again and i think that's really the from on my reading i go with the, like that she's a, a girl not a ghost reading and to me and i do it for some theological reasons too but it's because like the, the trauma of memory or pretending to forget what we've been through frames how we see the world and how we see others right and i think it's better to just acknowledge that so we can be critical of the way we're seeing others so we can try to see others better i mean our everything i said about failure just now with bonhoeffer and and gilead it would, is true in our interactions with others as well we will always be in some way not recognizing the vulnerability and the and the and the worth of others around us um but if we pretend that that our memory and our own traumas and are not are not framing the way we see others, then we are inclined to repeat the mistakes of the past upon the others that we see. And I think that's what I see going on in the, in the novel. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that shift from, for lack of better terms, I mean, magical re realism to simple realism uh, yeah. really does open up. I mean, you know, uh, you know, my mind immediately goes to Rene Girard, right. You know, the idea yeah. that we create rituals in order to uh, externalize our violence. Yeah. Well, on questions of resurrection, I want to give you plenty of space to operate. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and confess a sin here. Once I see a progressive theologian use the noun apparition in a, disc, in a discussion of Easter, uh, I am on guard from that point forward. But I want our listeners to hear your side of things. So take it where yeah. you will. How does yeah. resurrection fit into this theology of forgiveness? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I think my use of the word apparition, uh, it's... Maybe that was ill-advised. I, I didn't mean to like use it to kind of question the reality of the resurrection because resurrection is something I want to I want to that I do commit to fully. Okay. I think what and, I want, and, to and I'll go ahead and tell a narrative because you're all about narrative. Yeah. I yeah. Uh, I got an opportunity about five years ago to interview John Cobb in a live podcast, yeah. and uh, I asked him about this matter of apparition because you know uh, it just struck me as a, a reduction of things and. Uh, he, he used his formidable wit to uh, utterly humiliate me in front of 200 <laughs> Protestant uh, progressive Protestants uh, at Trip Fuller's uh, theology beer camp in Los Angeles. So uh, I think I'm, st I'm just still bitter and I still need to uh, no. forgive. 
<laughs> no, <laughs> that's what's good. Um, I, no, I, I think you're right to pull it out because I, I would hate for it to be read um, too simply as like a dismissal of what I think are very real and demanding claims of resurrection. I think what I do want to, I think I, think I use that language because I want to, I also want to caution against um, other accounts of the resurrection as as also reductive in their right like one of the things that we see in the gospel narratives is that this jesus who who is embodied and who is experienced as embodied by the people who meet him also does things that embodied beings do not do like move through closed doors and disappear from sight and visible to some and not to others and and so the apparition i mean i didn't mean to say like oh therefore it's not real and this is just a ghost story because it's as my reading of beloved shows that's right. And that's, that's kind of why I wanted to put it in this novel, which is about a ghost story, right? Like, I'm, it's actually, not, this is not a ghost story. I think actually something more complicated is going on. And if the language of apparition connotes ghost story, that's, 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 I'm grateful for you signaling it. And I, I want your listeners to know that's not what I think. To me, what I am most committed to in the resurrection is the idea of the empty tomb. That the tomb is empty and that, that, that something fundamental has been lost. And that our job is to step into that emptiness in an attempt to regain it, but also never to give up trying to regain it. I think what's, what I worry about is that when we believe that we have, and I use the possessive language um, uh, like deliberately here, like when we decide that we have Christ, that we have found Christ and Christ is ours, and we stop looking, then things get dangerous. Then we think that Christ belongs to us. And then we start not recognizing where Christ is outside of the boundaries of our community. But we know that Christ is outside the boundaries of our community. That's the nature of the thing. Christ is always going before us, always always calling us on from where we are. And so this is kind of what I see happening like in Beloved, right? They think that they know who this person is and they assign an identity to her. And that makes them do violence to her which she does not deserve and keeps them from doing the Christian thing, which would be to care for her, right? The, this, this woman who has escaped, if that's the way we read it. And what I worry about in the Christian tradition is if we have too easy, if we do not let the resurrection haunt us. And again, the language of haunting is probably the wrong one because I don't want to sound like a ghost story. But, but if we don't let the resurrection trouble us, if we don't let the mystery of, a, of it really unsettle us, then we are not really living into what resurrection life looks like because what we will do instead, I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to use the language of, of apparition. I mean, I do use the language of apparition. I don't want it to be associated with the language of like myth, you know, like, like Boltmine or whatever, talking about the resurrection as a, as, okay, as that's, a myth. That's, I think, that's the clarification I was looking for. Thank you. Right. Cause that, cause that is just to put a tidy bow around it. That's to say, oh, we can explain this. It's just a myth. This is what humans do. We explain it. We incender right. it. Let's psychologize it. it and be done with it. Right. And now we have the Christ and we know what it means to be Christian, right? And if there's another version of resurrection, which has a kind of a, a, a theology of resurrection, which also says, oh, we understand what this is. It looks like this kind of embodiment. And that's what it is. And now we understand. And therefore, we don't have to keep being unsettled by how difficult the story is, right? What you, what you actually have are a bunch of stories that do not make sense and cannot be made sense together and contradict with each other. And and I think the purpose of that is not for us to try to figure out what is the continuity. It's actually to come into relationship with this idea of, oh, we are meant to always go forward. We, we cannot hold on to this thing. On the contrary, what's important is the empty tomb, understanding that God, that Christ is not here, and, but Christ is going before us. And if we follow, we can arrive. We can arrive somewhere closer to Christ. But even when we arrive there, if we say, oh, we're there and now we have to stop traveling, we don't all have to keep trying anymore. Christ will step away from us again and say, keep trying, keep trying. <laughs> right. And so like, 
for me, what's really essential about the resurrection, and I think the resurrection is essential, obviously, Christian doctrine is 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 not a particular theory of what the resurrected Christ was in any kind of physical way to the disciples, although I believe that Christ was a physical in a physical way to the disciples. It's more a commitment to that sense of the empty tomb. That the tomb is actually empty, that when the women arrive, you know, in the first version of the Gospel of Mark, when the women arrive at the tomb, it is empty, and they must go forth from that space in terror which is the last line of the gospel, right? But we also know what they did was spread the word. What they did was start start speaking about what had happened and develop this community, right? And, and it was rooted in the fact of, and in the reality and the engagement with absence of what is not there. So to me, that's, that's what's important. And the apparition language is just to kind of unsettle any kind of reductive notion of, of the resurrection, because I think the resurrection is meant to, to pull us away from any tidy packages we might try to place around what new life in Christ looks like for him or for us. Very good. Well, that actually pivots nicely into my last question. Your book finishes in territory that's familiar to me with Achilles and Priam outside the gates of Troy. And honestly, that leaves me wondering whether your theology has a place for eschatology. So the New Testament's closing pages feature a city that descends from heaven in which God is all and is in all. Um, but you seem suspicious of that, like we talked about before when John Milbank attempts yeah. that. Yeah. Homer, on the other hand, has no place for eschatology. Uh, when Achilles yeah. goes to Hades, I mean, Odysseus is going to follow him. And, you know, uh, Laertes is also going to be there. And yeah. why can I not think of the name of the son of Odysseus? Help me here. Telemachus. Thank you. Uh, Telemachus is going to follow him. I have no idea why I just blanked on that. Uh, But what do you say to a reader who is suspicious that this version of forgiveness, suspicious as it is of an age to come in which regret does not pervade? I mean, is this just, I mean, are we consigned to be Homeric? I hope not. I mean, I I think that's, I, I hope not. That's not, that's not my aim for that account. Although, you know, I think a reader might, if they might be able to mind an argument. I, I guess what I would say is what worries me about, about, I, I admitted I might have some eschatological problems. What worries me about eschatology or certain forms of eschatology is they replicate the resurrection problem I just described. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is right. Which is, I think that, I think that in too many cases, and it's not necessarily a Christian thinker's fault because we're given language like paradise in, in from Jesus's own mouth, right? But when we think about the eschaton, when we think about what will be, what it means for God to be all in all and for all to be reconciled to God in Christ, I think we think that means a particular kind of happiness or a particular kind of felicity or a particular kind of joyfulness, which I'm, I think there probably is joyfulness, right? But I also think that the thing that speaks most clearly of who God is for me. And, you know, I know for many listeners, this podcast is, is Jesus. And Jesus was a man of sorrows. I'm sure Jesus also had happiness and, and, and joy and laughter with his friends and family and disciples. Um, But, but what's fundamental and, and important to me about any kind of eschatological vision is that it, it, it understand God as love. Right. And I think that, and I think that we know that, that love doesn't always bear out as happiness in our own lives. And that is part of what it means to be human, to be finite, is to, to mean that this love, which, which transcends all these things in, in, in human life can times sometimes not feel happy, or it can sometimes be full of sorrow. Right. And so what I want is, what I want is, 
especially in the, when I do engage eschatology in the book, what I want is to, to, to give Christians and Christian theologians permission to imagine an eschatology or an imagine an eschaton, which is so fully committed to the idea that love is all in all and that God is love, that it, it can, it can start to accommodate the idea that you, you might remember things that don't make you happy, or you might be in communion with folks who, with whom you were angry, right? Like those possibilities for eschaton might depend upon us letting go of human affect or human affected experience as grounding our eschatological vision and instead turning to, you know, the, the word made flesh, turning to, to Jesus and the, what we see of Jesus as a vision for what, um, what, what, life and God looks like. Well, Matt, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word today. What do you want our listeners thinking about forgiveness, modern novels, or whatever else as we head for the door? Uh, well, thanks. Um, that's a good question. I guess, you know, one thing I don't talk about in the book a lot, and maybe this is a, a gap in the book or a flaw in the book is, is, um, is self-forgiveness. You know, I, I tend to think about forgiveness mostly as 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 interpersonal or even between groups. And a little bit of the of the of the Bonhoeffer stuff I was talking about is a little bit of like giving ourselves permission to do things that we that we know that we must do, but even though we regret having to do them. And right, that's that's a little bit. But there's a different kind of forgiveness, which is um, which self-forgiveness when we when when we are when we regret things that we've done, when we have real remorse, I mean, right, right. Like those kinds of things. And I think that as a, I'm a Christian pastor, right. I think when I think about forgiveness in people in the churches I've served, honestly, the, the deep and difficult questions of forgiveness, as often as they are interpersonal, they are just personal. They're just a person has a deep regret that they can't, they can't shake. Um, and even if they believe God forgives them, which they don't always believe, they don't forgive themselves. Right. And I think the idea of, I think the idea of forgiveness as non-retaliation. I mean, one of the things I talk about is that forgiveness is a form of judgment. To to say to someone I forgive you implies that they must have done something wrong. You can't forgive someone for something that a wrong thing they didn't do. And so I think I think one thing that if forgiveness is non-retaliation, I think that for self-forgiveness, what we can say is that we can acknowledge that we have made mistakes in the past, judge those mistakes, without retaliating against ourselves, without wishing harm upon ourselves or hurting ourselves or hating ourselves for having done those things. Again, that's not something I trace out in the book, but, but as I've spoken to people about the book since, and especially because a lot of folks do come to me asking about self-forgiveness, I'd be interested in your, if for your listeners to reflect on, does this kind of idea of, of self of, of non-retaliatory judgment, is that a constructive way? Is that a useful way to think about how we might, what posture we might take towards our own past mistakes that we both want to be honest about the fact that they were wrong, that we were wrong, right. That we did something wrong that we regret, but also to acknowledge that hurting ourselves or beating up ourselves about it now cannot undo the past, that any kind of retaliation I take against myself cannot unmake the thing that I made. And so all that we can do is try to acknowledge the pastness of the past and move forward into to new life. That's not to pretend the past doesn't exist or to absolve those those sins is to acknowledge their impact and try to and try to do differently and do better matthew itchahashi potts thank you for coming on christian humanist profiles thanks Nathan. listeners thank you for downloading and listening in the book is forgiveness an alternative account from yale university press 
Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.